Let us now turn in God's holy word, people of God, to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. We turn now to the last book of the Holy Scriptures, inspired by God to be part of the canon of Scripture, the book of Revelation, and reading the fourth chapter, which will also be the basis for our message this afternoon. The throne in heaven, it says, as a title in this particular Bible. It's the throne of God, of course, that we'll be talking about the heavenly throne and the vision that John received of that throne. So let's listen then to God's holy, inspired, inerrant word here in Revelation 4, as the apostle John then writes, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who was sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearts and also our reflection upon the truth of this word as we think of this great vision that the Lord gave his servant John to see. And people of God, the vision that we're going to look at this afternoon is a vision of a throne. A throne unlike any other throne. And more glorious than any other throne, the throne of God. Now you all know, of course, what a throne is. Though most of us may actually never have seen a throne literally. Because thrones are typically occupied by earthly kings and queens, which, of course, we don't have in the United States. If you live in a nation which still has royal personages like the Netherlands or the Great Britain, the United Kingdom or Denmark, those people may have seen a throne. Although I don't know how many of them, ordinary people, would have seen these thrones and a king or queen sitting on one. On the other hand, you and I most likely have certainly seen pictures of thrones. For example, on our television, it wasn't very long ago, in the spring of this year, that one could watch the coronation 
of what is now King Charles III of the United Kingdom, following his mother who passed away, Queen Elizabeth II. And maybe if you did see some of that, it was televised, you would have seen him sitting on an earthly throne. Well, such earthly thrones can, of course, be magnificent objects. They usually are glamorous and ornate seats with gold rims, indicating the glory of the occupant. If you want to read about one of the most spectacular earthly thrones ever constructed, you should just read in the Bible, in the book of 1 Kings, in chapter 10, the throne of Solomon. King Solomon had a magnificent throne constructed for him and sat upon it. He was Israel's most glorious earthly ruler. Listen just a moment to verses 18 and 20 of 1 Kings 10. As it describes that throne, the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests, and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. Yes, the throne of Solomon reflected the immense wealth as well as the great power and the glory of this earthly king. But now again, I say, the throne scene before us this afternoon displays a throne that is unparalleled. Because what's described here in Revelation chapter 4 is a heavenly throne occupied by a divine king. The chapter opens in the first verse of the Apostle John, writing after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This chapter is recording a new vision that the Apostle John received on the island of Patmos right after the first vision he had received and recorded in Revelation chapter 1. In that first vision that Christ gave to John, he saw Jesus Christ himself as the exalted Lord walking among golden lampstands, representing seven churches in Asia Minor. And during that vision, Christ was told, Christ told John that he had to write to each of those seven churches specific letters that Christ wanted to address to them. That's in chapters 2 and 3. We often call these, you no doubt have heard messages on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. But now in chapter 4, Christ presents to John another scene. Now he opens the doors of heaven to John. John again hears the voice of Christ, which he had already heard in his first vision, which sounded like a trumpet. But now that voice comes and tells him, come up right here to heaven, John. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And he means that, of course, in terms of a vision. John was seeing this as a vision. God says to Christ, come up here, I'll show you what is going to take place after this. Because from this point on in the book of Revelation, Christ is going to reveal to John what is going to happen in the future. In chapters 2 and 3, Christ had spoken about the the, the present condition of the churches that he was writing to what they should do in serving their Lord, 
But now in chapter 4, Christ is preparing his churches for what is going to happen in the times that lie ahead until his return from heaven. That's what the rest of Revelation is really all about. But before showing John what is going to happen in the days and years to come, in the ages ahead, before he does this, he wants John to see who is on the throne. He wants him to see the throne of God, who is the sovereign who will fulfill all of these events that will be described in the chapters to follow. That word throne is a key word, by the way, in the book of Revelation. It occurs 11 times in this chapter alone. The most important thing to see, in other words, is to see as we face the future of the world is the throne in heaven. And as we read in verse 2, right after receiving the invitation then to come up to heaven, John writes, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And by the way, that reminds us that we're dealing here, in fact, with, of course, a vision. And you must not forget that. What John sees as he is, as it were, in the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is filling him, is not in every respect exactly the way things are in heaven. Rather, what John sees has a symbolical and a much deeper meaning that the Spirit wants him to know and keep in mind as he and as God's people live in this present world. So this afternoon, I want to, first of all, look with you at the one on the throne in heaven, as John sees him described. Then we'll look at the ones who are surrounding the throne. And thirdly, let's hear that also consider the response of those around the throne to him who is on the throne. First of all, who is on the throne that John sees in heaven? Well, indeed, he is a very glorious figure. Let's note immediately that this vision makes clear throughout that this person on the throne is the triune God himself. The last verse of chapter 4 records the praise of those around the throne to him who is on the throne, and they address him as, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Speaking of the triune God here, in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, speaks of God repeatedly as being the one who is on the throne of heaven. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In Isaiah 66, verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And so in this vision, John then sees God sitting on his heavenly throne. And it's a throne in heaven, the place where God dwells, where he lives, where he rules over the universe. Of course, God is also omnipresent. He's not only in heaven. He's also present on this earth, which he created. But it is from heaven, as it were, that God then directs sovereignly all events that happen on the earth and in the entire cosmos And this God who is on the throne is the most glorious God indeed. John sees him as such when he writes in verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I'm not a person who knows a lot of anything really about jewelry and gems. In fact, all that I know is something that I hear people tell me or that I may have read here or there. And the particular jewels that are mentioned here 
are also mentioned in Revelation 21 as jewels or gems decorating the walls and the foundations of the holy city, the New Jerusalem. Now, jasper is mentioned here, and that's a gem that is translucent and lets brilliant light shine through it. Revelation 21 verse 11 says that the holy city shone with the glory of God and the radiance was like a most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. God himself, you see, is light, says scripture. He's full of light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And so we see his glory, as it were, represented here by the gem that is a jasper. And the carnelian, it's also called in some translations, the sardius, is, is a, I understand it's a deep red-colored gem. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, suggested it may symbolize the judgments of God or the justice of God. Yes, God also shows his glory in his perfect justice, as well as in his wrath. And then the rainbow surrounding the throne, which resembled, it says, an emerald. Well, an emerald is a bright green stone. You all know how striking the rainbow is as the sun's rays burst through the raindrops and we see this marvelous rainbow against the backdrop often of a, of a rather dark sky. That also shows, again, the glory of God. And so the obvious meaning of this view of God on the throne is that John is seeing God here, first of all, in all of his glory. The Bible says that no one can even see him in all of his glory. But this is represented here as the one who's sitting on the throne. He is a God of all glory. And then John also sees this God as a God who is holy. We read of this in the response of the four living creatures. We'll come to them pretty soon. But those creatures never stop saying, according to verse 8, and we sang it here just a while ago as well, these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's an expression taken, as you may know from, know, from Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah also received a vision of God on his throne in heaven, and he hears the cherubim saying, exclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yes, our God is a perfectly holy God. There's no blemish, no corruption. No taint of sin or speck of sin in his entire being. He's a holy God. And then John sees him also as an almighty God. There's no limit to his power. He is omnipotent. That is, he has power over all things in the universe. In verse 5, John sees that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And well, when you think of lightning and peals of thunder and so on, we think of power, don't we? A lightning bolt can produce as much as a billion volts of electrical energy. And the thunderclap that follows it, well, you know, even our children here know that when it thunders and you get a thunderclap, it, it's a fearful sound. It, 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 when the lightning, it seems that the lightning might be striking nearby and immediately it's followed by this boom, indicating again that it is a God who is a God of power, a God of might who's on the throne. That's what John sees here. And, and then John sees him also as an eternal God. 
That's indicated also here in chapter 4. In verse 8, it describes God as the one who was and is and is to come. It's an expression also used in Revelation 1 verse 18, which reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Basically what that's saying is that our God is above time. Indeed, with him there is no time. Verse 9 of chapter 4 says about him that he is lives forever and ever. Verse 10 in the chapter repeats that phrase as well. It says that the 24 elders worship him who lives forever and ever. He is the eternal God who is, was, and is forever. So what a God John sees here on this throne. He sees a God who is full of glory, perfectly holy, almighty, and eternal. Like John, our eyes too must always be first of all focused on him as we live our lives here in this world. We must always know that there's one on the throne. And even though we're focused so much on our earthly lives and activities and what all happens around us day by day, as we live our earthly lives from day to day, we must always live our lives with a focus on the throne of God. He's the one who's on the throne of heaven. He is our God. What a comfort it is to know that we are his people, that we belong to him, to this almighty one. As we look around us, and as we know this morning as well, as we think of all that's happening, our focus must be on him who's on the throne. If only the masses, if only the peoples of the world, if only the rulers of the earth would see that throne, and that being that God who's on the throne for who he is, because he's the one who's in control of all events. He's the one who directs everything that has happened and will yet happen in the course of time. Our eyes of faith must be fixed on this triune God, then we can live with confidence, with hope, no matter what occurs in this world and also in the times that are to come. But now as we continue then to look with John as he is in heaven looking at this vision that he received of the throne room there and of God on the throne. I want you to notice secondly, uh, people of God this afternoon, that there were others present there besides God himself in that throne room. There were also those who surrounded the throne of God. In fact, there were several kinds of persons or beings who were around that throne. And the first group that we hear about that's mentioned in verse 4 we read there around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads now who is that referring to who were those 24 elders the number 24 is obviously 2 times 12 that's simple math but this is significant, it's significant, because 12, 12 is the number in the book of Revelation that has special significance and symbolism. It's the number representing the people of God. We can say the number 12 represents the church of God. More exactly, it represents the true church of Christ. Those redeemed by God, those who are his servants. You all know that there were 12 tribes. 
in the Old Testament nation of Israel, descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. Those are the Old Testament people of God. We could say they were the Old Testament church. To be sure, not all the people of Israel were true believers by any means. Many fell away from God during the course of time, and they were not at all saved. But it was from that 12, those 12 tribes of Israel, by and large, along with some others, that God chose and redeemed people to be in his covenant of grace. Each of those tribes was ruled over by persons who were known as the elders of Israel. And then in the New Testament age, Christ established the new Israel as his covenant people, the church of the New Testament. And who, on whom did Christ build that church? Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that he built it on the foundation on the apostles of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And how many apostles were there? A simple little question for all of you, for our children. How many apostles were there? There were 12, weren't there? 12 apostles. Now I ask you, why 12? Because, you see, they correspond to the 12 elders of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the continuation of the Old Testament church, And so the church of the Old Testament is represented by the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the New Testament, it's represented also then by the testimony of the 12 apostles. And together they form the one redeemed covenant community of God. And now in John's vision, then, this one church is symbolized by the 24 elders seated around the throne. Really, in the vision, they constitute the church that is triumphant, as we call it. The church is also the church of militant. You and I are still on earth. We still must fight the battle against sin and Satan. But those who go to heaven belong to the church triumphant. They have conquered in the fight. They're victorious. And they then are, as it were, sitting on their thrones, surrounding the throne of God. Revelation 21, which gives the vision of the new heaven and earth, also refers to that triumphant church, calling it the holy city, the new Jerusalem, whose gates had on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and whose foundation stones had on them the names of the 12 apostles of Christ. So the 24 elders then in this vision here in chapter 4 clearly represent the redeemed church of all the ages. They're going to reign with Christ forever to the praise of the triune God who is sitting on the throne. And notice that they were dressed in white garments. White, of course, symbolizing purity and holiness because through the blood of Christ they were saved from sin and made a perfectly holy people clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, John sees that they were wearing golden thrones on their heads. You know, the word thrones here, used in English word thrones, is, is, does not refer here to the thrones that kings and queens wear. There's another word in the Greek language uh, for that kind of a throne worn by royalty. But the word behind thrones in this particular case refers more to laurel wreaths, thrones that, or crowns, as it were, that were given to those who had obtained a victory. Those who had won, for example, an athletic contest, 
as they do, for example, in the Olympic Games. And they receive a medallion, but they also receive a, a wreath around their necks, indicating victory. That's what the word means here. Those who have received a crown of victory because they have remained true to their Lord. They belong to him. They are his servants, and now they are reigning with him. That's why they were privileged to sit here around the throne of God. And then who else was around that throne? Well, we'll read at the end of verse 5, before the throne were burning seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And here the seven spirits of God, people of God, is not a reference to angels who are spirits. But actually, this is a reference here to the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. It's also used in chapter 1, verse 4, and you hear it every Sunday, if indeed you hear the salutation, I usually use it in the afternoon services, uh, which is taken from Revelation 1, verse 4, as we greet God's people by saying grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's the God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first one from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The seven spirits before God's throne refers really to the Holy Spirit in all of his perfection because the word number seven indicates perfection. He's the one who illuminates the presence of God. That's why he's pictured here as being seven torches of fire as they were burning there before God's throne. And then John sees in his vision still another group that surrounds God's throne. And they are even closer to that throne than the 24 elders were. Listen to verse 6, the last part. And around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And then John describes those creatures as he saw them. The first one looked like a lion the second like an ox, the third one had the face of a man, and the fourth looked like a flying eagle. And each of them had six wings and were full of eyes. And now you might be asking in your own mind, who are those strange-looking creatures, those living creatures? What do they represent? Why are they near to God's throne? Well, there was an Old Testament prophet by the name of Ezekiel with quite a similar vision that God gave to him, a vision of him in heaven. And you can read that vision that God gave to Ezekiel in chapter 1 of his prophecy. There too, Ezekiel saw four living creatures with wings and eyes that could see all around. They also had faces resembling a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. And now in Ezekiel's vision, those four living creatures are said to be cherubim, cherubim, which are a class, a group of angels. That's also what these four living creatures represent here in John's vision. They represent a special class of angels who are surrounding God's throne. They're like the cherubim in Ezekiel's vision and like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision who cry unceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You know what their task is? It is to guard the throne of God. That's why they have eyes that are all over to make sure that no one, no one comes near to that throne, too close, too close to this holy God. Nothing certainly sinful, nothing impure 
can come near to God. And these living creatures, one has the strength of a lion, and they serve God with diligence like an ox. They have the swiftness of an eagle as they carry out his will, and they have the intelligence of a man. They represent the angels of God who always serve him and worship him. But notice, those living creatures are not on thrones, like the 24 elders were on thrones. The angels, let's always keep in mind, are perfect and powerful beings, created by God to be his servants. But they are not the crown of his creation. As man was made to be the crown, the image bearer of God, the angels are forever God's servants who do his bidding night and day. And in fact, they are to be our servants as God's people, according to God's decree. We read in Hebrews 1 verse 14, are they, meaning the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You know what a ministry, what a blessing it is to have the ministry of God's holy angels because they are there always as God's servants to guard us, to watch over us physically, yes, spiritually, indeed. They are God's heavenly hosts. We're always fighting against the evil powers, the devil and his demons, says the Bible. And, you know, it may sound surreal to you, but even though we can't see the angels, they're always working there behind the scenes. They're always serving God, and they're always protecting and serving God's people. And so you and I should remember to thank God for the angels. But here in his vision in Revelation 4, John sees that their role specifically also is to glorify God, to surround his throne and guard his holiness and worship him. And that brings me then thirdly and lastly this afternoon to the response given to the one who sits on the throne by all of these creatures that surround him. And certainly it's a fitting way to end our look at this grand vision It's one thing to see who is on the throne of heaven. It's another thing to know how those surrounding him should respond to him. And how you and I, too, must respond to him. That's the whole, really, the whole point of this vision. That's why Christ gave this vision to John to see and recorded here for us in the Word of God. What's what's really the point? What's the point of this vision? Well, I know that earlier that Christ was going to show John from now on what was going to be happen hereafter in the future of the world. What would happen in the universe? What God had planned in these last days. But first, he says, John, you have to look. You have to remember who is on the throne of that universe. And why is that? Well, so that John might know and we might know and be assured that it is our triune God will always be in charge of everything that takes place. It's God who will direct all that happens on the earth and will still happen. He is our sovereign and almighty king. And how must we respond to that king on the throne? Well, one way indicated here in our chapter is worship. Worship. 
Listen to verses 9 and 10. And whenever the living creatures, meaning the cherubim, the angels, give glory and honor and thanks to him, notice they're worshiping God who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Worship is always the first primary response that God's people owe to him. It's the response of the angels of God in heaven. They worship him without end, day in, day out, forever. They give all glory and honor to him. But their worship is a signal, as it were, for the whole church to fall down and worship the God on the throne. All the 24 elders, representing again, remember, the church of all ages, all of them fall down and they worship him. That's always the number one response of God's people, those in heaven, but also us here on earth. That's why it is so important to worship God here faithfully, Sunday after Sunday. When that falters, when Christians, as it were, give up on worship, especially on communal worship, because that's the scene that we see here in heaven, communal worship. We don't see a person here going off by himself in the woods or somewhere individually where he says, well, I'm going to praise God by myself. You may do that any time you like during the week. But this is never a substitute for worshiping God together as his people. When that worship falls by the wayside, Christians have failed in their primary response to God. And inevitably it will lead to spiritual decline in their whole life. We are here to worship the God who's on the throne. But that isn't all. What else did the 24 elders do? Listen to the end of verse 10 and then verse 11. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Notice they cast their crowns. They took the crowns off their own heads and cast them before the throne of God Almighty. What does that indicate? It indicates their total submission to that king on the throne. They threw their laurel wreaths, their crowns of victory, at the feet of God because they realized that they, they were not worthy of praise. They were not deserving of adoration. God had saved them by his grace. God had created them, in fact. Now, why did God create them? To worship and to serve him, to be obedient to him. They sang, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive all glory and power. And they give this reason, for you created all things, And by your will they existed and were created. Why did God create the universe at the beginning of time? Why did God do that? Including people like us, that all might bow before him and honor him in everything that they do. In their entire task on this earth, as he enabled them to have dominion over the earth, in everything they do, in their daily life, in their daily work, in their homes, in their families, in everything they do, 
They were to cast their thrones before God, that is, to submit themselves to his will and to do his willing. That's our task on earth. That's why God created us. It's also, of course, why he redeemed us, that we might serve him more faithfully and wholly as servants, justified by his grace. And so we must acknowledge him as our God on the throne. And one day, all will acknowledge him who sits on the throne. The Bible says, every knee shall bow before him. Every knee shall bow before this king, this God. Not one knee will not be bent. One one day they will acknowledge him that he is God and Lord, the one who sits on the throne. Oh, may you and I be so glad, ever glad, to bow our knees before him. And having worshipped him again together here this afternoon, offering our praise, now we leave again from this place to live our lives in this week in all that we do in humble obedience to our King. With this grand doxology on our lips, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we bow our heads before you. And certainly we bow our knees before you as well, knowing that we are to submit to you. And we gladly do so, O Lord. We cast, as it were, our lorries before your throne, recognizing that you are the one who is worthy of all praise. Thank you, Lord, that we could offer that praise to you also in our worship this afternoon and today. And may we ever be mindful of this glad and glorious calling that you've given to us to unitedly express our worship of your name, for you alone are God. And you're our God who has created us for that purpose, that we might ever praise you and serve you and strengthen us again that we ask, Lord, for all of our callings, all of our duties in this new week as we go forth from here. May we then also be ready at all times to submit ourselves to doing your will in our lives, personally, in our homes, in our work each day, in all our other activities, may your name be praised. So we thank you that we can know that you're the sovereign God who reigns over all the universe. Thank you, Lord, that we could have this vision also in our minds here this afternoon of you, the Lord our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.